Uh, I told you just a few weeks ago as we began this series of messages that few books of the Bible are as and have been as controversial as the letter of James. There was a debate many, many centuries ago about whether or not James even belonged in the New Testament. And that's true largely because of the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. I mean, up to this point, me making a statement like that to many of you would cause you to shake your head and say, well, who could have possibly have a problem with the letter of James, right? It's all been good stuff. And those of you that know <clears throat> much of what he says throughout the rest of the letter know the same thing is true. What could possibly be controversial about this wonderfully practical uh, book of the Bible that helps us know how to live so effectively as people of God? Well, the biggest part of the controversy around James stems from what the apostle writes in the last half of chapter two about one particular subject, and that is faith as it relates to works. Faith and works, and how both of those things relate to our salvation. All around the world today, uh, people are divided over the matter of how a person becomes right with God how a person is saved. Most of the religious systems of the world teach that it's up to you. I mean, I remember learning that leadership lesson a long time ago when I was a teenager. I had a teacher in school that just lived by this mantra and he kept saying it over and over again for the years that we knew him. If it is to be, it is up to me. If it is to be, it is up to me. Now, you might apply that very effectively out in the corporate world, workaday world every day, maybe on the athletic field. But I can tell you one thing about that statement. If it is to be, it is up to me. You don't find it in the Bible, especially as it relates <clears throat> to salvation. But yet most of the religious systems in the world are based exactly on that mantra. If it is to be, if I am to have an eternal and right relationship with God, it's up to me because most religious systems in the world preach and teach a salvation based on your inherent goodness, based on the things that you do in order to get God to accept you. And so we are continuing, even in the 21st century, across the religious spectrum to engage in this debate. How is a person saved? How does a person become right with God? How is a person become acceptable to God? Is it by faith? Or is it by works? And certainly from a New Testament perspective, when you read most of what the Apostle Paul writes as contained in the New Testament, the answer to that question from our perspective seems crystal clear. Namely, that the gospel, the heart of the gospel, involves a salvation by faith alone. Faith in the perfect work of Christ on the cross. Take Galatians chapter two and verse 16, for example. This is the apostle Paul. For we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified. So there's absolutely no way to misunderstand that. Or is there? And that brings us to James chapter two this morning because this is a passage of scripture that we're gonna look at today that people who make it their mission in life to try to discredit the truthfulness of the Bible are quick to point out 
And this is a statement, particularly James 2.24, that's proven to be something of a live grenade that's been cast among the people of God literally for every generation throughout church history. Having kept in mind what we just read from Galatians 2 in the pen of the apostle Paul, now here's what James says in James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by what? By works and not by faith alone. And with that one statement, people of all stripes, all shapes and sizes have been debating what the Bible actually teaches about the path to salvation. How is a person justified before God? How is a person saved? How is a person made acceptable to God? Is it by faith or is it by works? Because if you take that on the surface, it seems like the Bible may be teaching two different things. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther did not care for the book of James and he made no bones about it. He called it an epistle of straw. And it wasn't really that he had problems with the larger part of James. He had problems with James 2.24. He had problems with one statement that James make, made, that one that we just read. But here's the question that I want to address this morning as we try to make sense of it. Is the criticism of James really fair? And I don't think that it is because if you read James properly, you'll discover that he really doesn't so much cancel Paul's teaching about salvation by faith alone. Instead, what James actually does is he compliments it. He doesn't cancel it, he compliments it. James does not teach a salvation by works. What James teaches is a, an obedient faith that always works. If it's genuine faith, faith will always be a working faith. The problem with James is that his language sometimes causes confusion. So what I wanna to do today is to see if we can address some of those concerns as we take a look at this very important and historic text today. James, if you were here last week, you know we kinda of did a first part of this message last Sunday morning. And he's working out a theme that proclaims basically this summary statement. Faith without works is what? Right, authentic faith, James says, is always a living faith. It's always an observable, uh, observable faith. It's a faith that can be proven uh, based on obvious observation in terms of how it lives itself out on an everyday basis. Faith without works is dead. And it continues along those same lines in the paragraph that begins in verse number 20, which is our text today. So let's take a look and read the text before we make a few comments about it. James chapter 20 uh, and following. Those of you that can, let's stand together as we honor the reading of the holy and precious word of God. Words will be on the screen if you need them. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also, say it out loud together with me, faith apart from works is dead. Father, would you illuminate our minds and our hearts this morning that we might have complete understanding, not only of what James is trying to teach us from this very important part of the Bible, but also that we might understand fully and completely how we become right with you for all of eternity. Because the goal of our life is to make much of Jesus now and forevermore. His name alone be glorified in this place today. And we pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you, church family. You may be seated. Now, here's the point we want to drive home today. While we are saved by faith alone and nothing but faith, our salvation is never by a faith that is alone. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Saving faith is always obedient faith. If there's no obedience on the other side of professed faith, it's a lip service only faith that the Bible would clearly teach is not genuine saving faith. That much we tried to make clear last week. Faith is always active in ways that honors God and where it's not active, where your life does not bring honor and glory to God, then there is a question mark surrounding the actual validity of your faith. If your life is more about you than it is about God, there is a question mark that hovers over the validity of your faith. And that's what everybody needs to ask themselves today. Is my faith a lip service faith? Or is my faith one that can be verified by how it's demonstrated through my hands and my feet and my mouth, right? So let's talk about that for a few minutes today because James certainly does. And what he does in the passage that we've read this morning is basically illustrate the principle that he founded in the text that we looked at last week. James is obviously the senior pastor, the presiding bishop, the ruling elder of the first century church there at Jerusalem. He's a preaching pastor. And so he obviously understands the importance of stories in terms of communicating gospel truth. And so he does that here today. He proves his point or tries to illuminate his point through two very important illustrations, both of which are taken from the Bible. First of all, he shows us that Abraham, the patriarch, possessed an obedient faith. So the first way he illustrates this, this point that faith without works is actually a dead faith and not a genuine faith at all is by using the life of the most important Jewish person, I think, who has ever lived, and that is Abraham. He wants us to understand that Abraham's faith was real because of what, was, what Abraham actually did that was observable in a way that all people could see. Now, you have to remember that James is writing to a church that's fundamentally Jewish. Most of Paul's writings would be going to the Gentile world, and he would be trying to equip Gentile believers. And some of James's flock would have been Gentile believers, but far and away, most of them would have been Jewish. And so the fact that he would be writing here about Abraham and bringing Abraham in as an illustration 
means that he would have had the church's immediate attention, at least his immediate church, because they would have been fundamentally Jewish. So what George Washington is and was uh, to American people, Abraham represents the same thing to the Jews. I mean, he's the father of their country. He's the father of the faithful. If Jews had a Mount Rushmore, Abraham's face would be the very first one etched into the granite. And of course, when those of us who are New Testament believers think of Abraham, what's the first word that you think of when I mention the word Abraham? First cognitive word that comes to mind. Faith. Abraham's a man of faith. That's what we know him for all throughout the Bible. The father of the faithful. And because of the way Paul uses Abraham, particularly through his writings in Galatians and Romans, we have the Apostle Paul to thank for much of this understanding that Abraham is important because Abraham is the prototypical man of faith. And here's the thing, based on the statement that James makes here in verse 23 of chapter two, James would totally agree with that assessment that Abraham is indeed a man of faith who was made right with God because of what he believed about God. James would have no argument whatsoever with that statement. James 2.23 is a quotation from Genesis 15.6, which is one of the most important verses in the Bible. When you see a Bible verse repeated one other time, like it's in the Old Testament, then repeated once more in the New Testament, we know that's probably a pretty significant verse. But when you see something stated the first time in the Old Testament, like Genesis 15, 6 says, and then repeated almost verbatim three other times in the New Testament, you know that's a pretty significant verse. And so based on the fact that it's repeated a number of times in the Bible, we can safely conclude that James 15, 6 is one of the most important statements in the whole Bible. James repeats it, Paul repeats it twice throughout his writings, and here's what it says. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what's the most important statement in that verse? Believed, that's right. Circle the word believed in your notes this morning. Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. And so that raises the question, how was Abraham the Jew saved? Abraham the Jew was saved the same way Jim the Gentile was saved, by faith in the person of God. Abraham believed God. And because he believed God, literally the verb is faith, Abraham faithed God. And because Abraham faithed God, he was, in response to that faith, granted a righteous standing before a holy God. James doesn't have any argument with that whatsoever. But James emphasizes something different than Paul emphasizes about Abraham's faith. What James emphasizes is how we know that that faith was genuine. How do, how do we know that Abraham believed God? And we know that Abraham believed God, not based on what Abraham said, but we know that Abraham believed God based on what Abraham did. That's right, look at verse 21 of James 2. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was what? Completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. James, of course, is referring to the event that's recorded in Genesis chapter 22. We don't have time to read that or even to unpack it completely, but that's one of the most famous stories of the Bible where Abraham, who had waited for this child of promise, whose name is Isaac, waited for the child to be born for 25 years, patiently waited, and it wasn't all patient waiting, right? They tried to hurry up the plan of God and that resulted in a disaster, but Abraham waited 25 years. And then it wasn't long after that that God said, now take him and, and go on a journey up to Mount Moriah, which is what we know today as Jerusalem, and take the boy's life. Offer him as a sacrifice to me to demonstrate your love and your faithfulness to me. And the fact that Abraham was willing to do that without so much as even the slightest hesitation recorded in the Bible. That's what's impressive to James. Not just what Abraham said he believed, but how he demonstrated it. What he did with that professed faith. He says in verse 22 that Abraham's faith was what? Active. That's James's word. His faith was active. His faith was completed by his works. In other words, Abraham's actions revealed that there was a completeness to his faith, that there was a well-roundedness to his faith, that it demonstrated a certain level of maturity that made it crystal clear, yes, indeed, this man is a man of faith. It demonstrated that it was true. Unqualified obedience always does. And this is why Abraham is listed in Hebrews 11. Y'all are familiar with Hebrews 11, aren't you? That's often referred to kind of as a faith hall of fame because in this lengthy chapter in Hebrews 11, uh, the writer of Hebrews, who was obviously Jewish, you can tell that throughout the whole book, lists all these wonderful characters, not all of them are Jews, but most of them are, who demonstrated by their life that they were people of great faith. And one of the earliest that he mentions there in Hebrews 11 is the man on Mount Rushmore for the Jews, right? Abraham is there. But it's interesting that it's what's, what, what's said about Abraham there in Hebrews 11 is not so much concerning his profession of faith. The writer to the Hebrews keeps talking about what Abraham did to prove his faith was genuine. Look, for example, at Hebrews 11 and verse eight. By faith, Abraham, what? Say it out loud, please. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So how do we know that Abraham was a man of faith? Well, he listened to the voice of God and he did exactly what the voice told him to do. And the Bible says he went out not knowing where he was going. Talk about a demonstration of faith. And then look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, and what's the next word? Offered up Isaac. 
This is why Abraham is called a friend of God. Not just because he went walking around all the time talking about his faith, but it was because his faith had legs. And only when a person is able to profess faith with their lips and then demonstrate it with their hands and with their feet and with the better part of their entire life can that person genuinely be called a friend of God. I mean, think about it. If Abraham said, "Mm -mm, I ain't doing that. You're talking about my son here. No. What's the next thing on your list? I might consider doing that. No, if Abraham had said no, if he'd have stiff-armed God at this point, then his faith would have been revealed as dead. And no Mount Rushmore for Abraham. Likewise, the same is true for a second Old, character, uh, Old Testament character that James uses as an illustration here, and that is Rahab the prostitute. Abraham the patriarch possessed an obedient faith, Rahab the prostitute possessed an obedient faith. Look at James 2, 25. And watch it, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, I love this because James does a remarkable thing here. He includes the guy whose face is the first face on Mount Rushmore in order to support his point, and then he brings a prostitute into the picture to do the same thing. Does that not just ooze with obviousness that the gospel of saving faith is for everybody, patriarch or prostitute? I'm just here to remind everybody, right in the middle of this message, that God can and will save anybody. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done with your life. You are never too far gone for God to pick you up, shake you off, dust your life, and mold it together in such a way that you can become a person that does great things as a person of incredible faith. Amen. Abraham and Rahab both had obedient faith. They had faith with arms and legs, faith that proved itself by what it did. Now, once again, time doesn't allow me to go through Rahab's whole story. Abraham's story that's used here was chapter 22 of Genesis. Rahab's story is chapter 2 of Joshua. But you remember, she lived there in Jericho, and that city was going down. And a couple of spies were sent in on a reconnaissance mission ahead of the assault that was to take place. Uh, And Rahab uh, assisted them. Now, she was as Gentile as she could be. She was not a Jew. And uh, she is revered here because she aided them. She protected them while they were in the city. And then she assisted in their escape from the city the night before the battle was to take place. And as a result, those spies commended her and they reminded her, you're not gonna be, not a hair on your head's gonna be touched when we come to bring these walls down tomorrow. And she was spared the eventual destruction of the city and she came to be revered 
throughout the history of Israel, in large part as well because of what she did. Because of her faith in the God of the Jews and how she demonstrated that she as a Gentile had faith in the God of the Jews. And so it's not at all surprising. You say, well, how do you know Abraham, uh, Rahab had faith? Well, she's in Hebrews 11 for crying out loud. She's in the faith hall of fame. What's she doing in there? If she didn't have faith that was proven by what she did. Look at Hebrews eleven thirty one. She's a little farther down the list than Abraham is. By what? By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She proved her faith based on what she did. And that's what's emphasized yet again in the same way as it was with Abraham by the writer of Hebrews. She's in Hebrews 11 because she possessed faith but she made it out of all of the people throughout the history of the Jews. She's in there because of the power-packed prominence of how her faith was revealed as a genuine living faith based on the risky nature of what she did in the name of God. It was active obedience, and that active obedience validated her faith. In other words, we know her faith that she professed was real based on what she did. Were y'all with me so far? Would you say amen? Maybe a good time here to pause and just kind of take a deep breath because now we have to tackle the hard part of James chapter two. I don't know that y'all are ready for the challenge. If y'all are ready for the challenge, would you say amen this morning? All right, let's tackle the hard part theologically this morning because the heart of James's argument again is verse 24. I mentioned it at the beginning of the message on purpose to get us ready for where we're coming to right here. Not only is it the heart of James's theological argument, but it's also been the heart of the, of the confusion between James's teaching and the teaching of Paul. Here's verse 24 again. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now the question that's caused the confusion is how does that statement square with the one, for example, that Paul makes in Romans 3.28? And here's what Paul says in Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Do you see the obvious difference between the two statements? James says, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what are the solution to the problem here? <clears throat> Several have been offered through the years, and I don't have time to chase all of those rabbits this morning, but let me, let me boil down our possible solutions to two for the sake of time this morning. The first possible solution is to conclude that James and Paul teach two different things, and therefore they contradict one another. Now let me just say, if that's true, we got a, a really large problem going on because that would cast the whole validity of the, of the truthfulness of the Bible in question. I mean, if we can't trust what these two guys are saying, how can we trust anything in the Bible? But that's one solution. They're just, they're just basically stating two different theological points of view. Paul teaches that a person is saved by faith 
James teaches that a person is saved by works. And frankly, that's what a simple reading of the text would seem to imply. I mean, if you just read it right off the page and you don't know anything about the Bible, you would probably walk away thinking, these, these two guys need to get together, right? Because they're saying two completely different things. But if that's true, then we've got a blatant contradiction in the Bible and we've got a major theological mess on our hands. But there is a second alternative, and aren't you grateful for that? There's a second alternative, and it's simply this. James and Paul are using the word justify differently. And therefore, they don't contradict one another, but they complement one another. And here's the thing. Are you all still listening? Say amen. That's the correct interpretation right there. That's the way we need to read this passage of Scripture. When Paul uses the word justify, he's always using it in what we might call an initial sense to describe how our life with God, our life with a holy, righteous God gets started. How is a dirty, rotten, broken sinner like me and like you have a hope in the world of relating rightly to a God that's perfect, a God that cannot tolerate sin and that will not strive with sin. Well, God justifies us through our faith. And that's how we began our faith walk with the Lord. Paul uses the word justify to describe what happens when a person expresses faith in Jesus Christ. The word justify is a legal word. And basically what happens is, much like happened to Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So when a person responds to the work and person of Jesus Christ with faith and nothing but faith, God takes the gavel and he slams it down on the judgment bar and on the basis of our faith, he declares us no longer guilty in the presence of a holy God. That's what the word justify means and how it's being used by Paul. And it's how we become right with God. It's how God offers us standing in the holiness of of his eternal presence. God justifies us. He declares us no longer guilty of sin, forgives us of our sin, removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And he provides us with the necessary righteousness that we can now come into his presence and fellowship with him. It's all based on belief. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him Faiths in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, which is just another way of saying Abraham believed God and was justified before God. Everybody with me say amen. So that's Paul. Every time Paul uses the word justify or some form of it, that's what Paul is talking about. But here's the thing. Words can have different shades of meaning, can't they? Right? And that's true with the word justify. Just like it's true with the word love. If I say, here's a newsflash, I love Judy Locke. And if I were to say in the same breath, here's another newsflash, I love Krispy Kreme donuts. You ought to be wise enough to know I ain't using the word love in the same way. I mean, 
one kind of love results in babies and the other results in big bellies, right? <laughs> Somebody say amen. I ain't using the word love in the same way. And there's a lot of words that are like that. You look them up in the dictionary and the definition will have one, two, three, four. Four different ways to understand one word in the English language. Well, that's true in the Greek New Testament as well. And it's true with justify. James is not saying when he says a man is justified by works, he's not saying a man is saved by works. He's using the word justify not in terms of salvation like Paul uses it. He's using it in terms of what we might call vindication. Vindication, not salvation. A person is vindicated by his works. In other words, our works prove the validity of what it is we believe. Faith justifies a person before God in terms of salvation. Works justifies a person before God in, in the sense that it, at, uh, it outwardly demonstrates the reality of our saving faith. The way Paul uses it, <clears throat> faith justifies us before God. The way James uses it, faith justifies us before others. Because I can't see what you've done with your heart. God can see it and God knows. But I can see what you do with your hands and with your feet and with the totality of your life. Just like we can see that Abraham's faith was real by what he did. And we can see that Rahab's faith was real by what she did. It's observable that what you profess with your mouth is demonstrated by a life that's truly been changed by the very faith that the person professes to have. Vindication. That's what James is talking about. We're saved by faith. And James would have no argument with that. But living faith always is active. It proves itself by what it does. And in that sense, works justifies a believer, not before God, but before others who need to know that faith is indeed life transforming. Everybody tracking with me? Amen? So there's two different nuances in the Bible in terms of how the word justify is used. And James would have been very familiar with that. He would have heard Jesus teaching. There'll be a time when all of us stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and we'll be judged in large part based on what we've done in the body, what we've done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat that each one may give an account of the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And for the believer whose faith is indeed genuine and life transformative, that review at the judgment will be one final time that God forever justifies us when he opens up his mouth and says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter now in to your master's 
happiness. Now let's end this morning with two very important conclusions and I've got to be done. Conclusion number one, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Everybody heard me say amen. You can't add a thing uh, in order to get God to accept you. The biblical witness couldn't be more clear. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through what? Through faith. And this, Paul's going to emphasize it. This is not your own doing. It is the what? The gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, if salvation were based on what you did, heaven wouldn't be worth going to. Because we'd all be bragging once we got there about what we did to get there. It wouldn't be a place worth going to because you would make it and I would make it all about what we did. No, only boasting that's gonna happen in heaven is bragging about what Jesus did for us, amen. And I mean, my goodness, and we're gathered together in here on the first Sunday of Advent, uh, Advent, the Christmas season. And if anything, the Christmas season ought to remind us is that Jesus came into the world precisely because our best efforts would never be good enough to God. That's the whole point of why he came. We needed help. Because all of our righteous deeds are as filthy, rotten rags in the presence of a holy God. And so let it be very clear, our only hope is in the work that Christ came to accomplish for us on the cross of Calvary. Abraham was saved by faith. Rahab was saved by faith. The thief on the cross who couldn't do anything was saved by faith. And you and I are saved by faith. As Paul told the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Having established that, second conclusion, just as significant and it's this, saving faith is obedient. Saving faith reveals itself in God-honoring works. Works will not save you, but if you've legitimately been saved, works will follow. We're quick to quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We just did it. But we do well to go all the way through to verse 10. Somebody say amen. Verse 10 always gets left off of the quotation for by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand. Watch this now, watch it, watch it. Which God prepared beforehand that we God's people saved by faith through grace that we should walk in them walk in good works. All that's necessary for salvation is faith, but faith is only living when it's active. I remember when my daughter Whitney was a little girl, she loved to swim, but she hated going under the water. She didn't even want water to get on her face. She loved to get in the water, but boy, when it got on her face, just a couple of drops here, I gotta get out and wipe my face off used to drive me crazy. I won't say that in the second service, but I'll say it to you. And I knew that for her to be a good swimmer, we're gonna to have to get that mess corrected. 
she's going to have to go underwater. So I'd get in the little, you know, the, the shallow end of the pool with her. And I'd say, here's the deal. Let's go under the water. And she'd always say, no, nope, nope, not going under the water. I like it right here. And so I'd leave it alone for a while. And then I'd come back again. Let's go under the water. Finally, you know, after enough no's, I'd look at her and I'd say, honey, here's the thing. You trust your daddy? Oh, yeah, of course. I trust my daddy. And then I said, well, let me take you under the water. We'll come right back up. Won't be under the water only about half a second. Just go under, come right back up. And she'd look at me and she'd say, no. <laughs> I was just, this is the story of my life. I finally got her to go under the water with me when she was 24. <laughs> I wasn't that old. But I was, look at, do you trust your dad? Yes. Well, then let me take you under the water. No. And she never would. Now, there came a day where eventually she did. But the point that I'm making is simply this. There was a long stretch in her life where she was quick to verbalize she had faith in Father. But she was never willing to act on it. And I never did look at her because I didn't want to wound her. But I want to look at her and say, you don't trust me. You really don't. Because if you did, you'd go under the water with me for just a minute. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Something that's emphasized by James in his summary conclusion, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is what? Dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. The word spirit in that verse is the Greek pneuma. And again, James is using it not as a reference of the Holy Spirit, but to the human spirit. The word can also be translated breath. And what he's saying there is another example of how words can have different meaning. For as the body without the breath is dead, so faith without works is dead. A professing Christian whose life bears no God-honoring works, is a, uh, is a believer in name only. Their spiritual life is like a body without breath. So let the record clearly show that James and Paul are both right. Anybody that ever says, who's right about salvation? James or Paul, the correct answer to the question is yes. They absolutely agree with one another and they absolutely complement one another. Works without faith cannot save, but faith without works is dead. What kind of faith is yours. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen.